Welcome to another episode of the Uyghur History Project. Today, we are sharing an important book, Uyghur Nation, Reform and Revolution on the Russia-China Frontier, written by David Brophy and reviewed by Joshua L. Freeman. Below is an excerpt from Freeman's review, published in the Journal of the Society for Contemporary Thought and the Islamicate World in 2017. In a wide-ranging study, Brophy carefully reconstructs the interplay of local elites, intellectuals, community, and state from which the contemporary Uyghur nation emerged, a Uyghur-centered view of modern Uyghur history. On the basis of extensive archival, published, and manuscript sources, Brophy has written the fullest and most convincing account to date, of the 20th century development of the Uyghur national concept. Synthesizing intellectual and political history, he puts persuasively to rest, the frequent assertion that modern Uyghur identity was imposed from above by Soviet bureaucrats, and passively adopted by its designated subjects. Brophy demonstrates that the Uyghur national idea, and the bureaucratic reification of that idea, emerged from complex negotiations between proto-Uyghur elites and intellectuals, ethnographers of various backgrounds, and Soviet officials on the local and national level. The national framework they worked out, and which has since gained purchase among 10 million Uyghurs, was not determined by any single political imperative, ideology, or group. The making of the Uyghur nation, Brophy shows, was very much a contingent process. Given the transnational nature of Uyghur history, the often scattered and fragmentary source base, and the limitations of archival access in China and the former USSR, scholars must triangulate between far-flung sources in multiple languages. Brophy's remarkable linguistic breadth is an invaluable asset. In addition to voluminous sources in Russian, Chinese, and various Turkic languages, he draws on texts in Persian, Japanese, and Mongolian. This linguistic range is fully deployed, in the first sections of his study, which comprise an erudite discussion of the long-range history of the term Uyghur, and the term's intersections over the centuries with communities occupying the area now known as the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region of China. The Uyghur Khaganate of the 8th and 9th centuries, based in the Mongol steppe, gave way to smaller successor states in present-day Xinjiang and western Gansu. Their Turkic-speaking inhabitants followed various religious traditions, before ultimately adopting Islam, with the last Buddhist Uyghurs converting in the 16th century. The remnants of the Uyghur states were incorporated into Muslim-ruled polities, and the term Uyghur, had lost much of its ethnic and political content. In the centuries that followed, as the Uyghur homeland was ruled successively by Muslim dynasties, the Dzungar Mongols and the Qing, the word Uyghur was used mostly as an amorphous geographical moniker for the region. It was not until the 1920s that the Uyghur identity re-emerged as a clear communal affiliation, and only in the subsequent decade did it become a focal point for attempts to establish an independent state. That is not to say, however, that no indigenous sense of community existed among Xinjiang's oasis-dwelling Turks before their 20th-century designation as Uyghurs. In the oases of southern Xinjiang's Tarim Basin, communal identities had long combined membership in a broader Islamic community with a sense of local belonging, and were further strengthened by categories applied by the Qing state to the region's inhabitants. Nonetheless, Brophy does not see these forms of identity as protonational 
and suggests that Muslims in different parts of Qing Xinjiang likely identified as much with their co-religionists beyond Xinjiang as with each other. While these pre-modern forms of community did not determine the Uyghur nation's ultimate form and content, they did provide the scaffolding, around which local elites and state ethnographers would build that nation. But the Uyghur ethnonym first traveled a roundabout route back to the region of its origins, passing via ancient Chinese and Inner-Asian texts into the heated philological battles of 18th and 19th century European Orientalists, who tussled over the ancient provenance and contemporary identity of the mysterious Uyghur people. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a number of Turkic intellectuals in the Russian and Ottoman empires joined the conversation. They associated the term Uyghur, with high Turkic culture, and with the region in which the ancient Uyghurs had lived, by then part of the Qing province of Xinjiang. As Turkic reformist ideas and periodicals filtered into the farthest reaches of the waning Tsarist Empire, the notion of Uyghur identity emerged as an attractive option for a small number of Turkic intellectuals living in the distant corner of the Russian Empire adjacent to Xinjiang. By the late 19th century, Central Asia was largely divided between the Russian, Qing and British empires with imperial borders bearing little relation to cultural, linguistic, and religious affinities on the ground. This created potential ambiguity around the question of subjecthood, allowing many Turkic Muslims on both sides of the Qing-Russian, later Sino-Soviet, border to switch subjecthood or citizenship well into the 20th century. Considering the Russian presence throughout Xinjiang as well as the British consuls and subjects who wielded substantial influence in the south of the province, Brophy points out similarities with the treaty port system in China proper, where extraterritoriality played a comparably disruptive role. It is an instructive comparison, and helps highlight the complexities of subjecthood and citizenship in late imperial and early republican Xinjiang. Brophy notes that his study does not involve an analytical distinction between subjects and citizens, yet the text might have benefited from a bit more attention to such questions given the close linkage of the modern nation with the citizens who are understood to constitute it. Brophy's narrative centers around diaspora communities that formed along the Russo-Qing border during the imperial era, and it was the rationalizing 20th-century state that insisted those communities replace imperial loyalty with national belonging. On the cultural level, the name Uyghur commanded respect in the Turkic world, and both Taranki and Kashgari Uyghurs, as contemporary inhabitants of the ancient Uyghur homeland, were understood to have a special claim on the name. From an economic standpoint, the USSR was increasingly apportioning resources, especially land, on a communal basis, and a Uyghur nation would be better positioned at the bargaining table than scattered settlements. Politically, if scattered settlements were Uyghurs, the small Soviet Uyghur community could attract state patronage by presenting itself as the vanguard of socialist revolution among the much larger Uyghur population in Xinjiang, itself a potential vanguard for a revolution in China itself. In this context, early Soviet conceptions of Uyghur identity tended to consider Chinese origin the defining characteristic separating Uyghurs from other Central Asian Muslims. Early Soviet Uyghur organizations thus counted the Dungans. Chinese-speaking Muslims, or Huawei, among their constituents. By the mid-1920s the Dungans came to be regarded as a separate community, but their early inclusion under the Uyghur umbrella is a reminder that the ethnolinguistic Uyghur identity that ultimately emerged was far from predetermined.
Here as throughout the book, Brophy carefully teases out the complex relationship between ideology and politics, keeping in mind that their influence is inevitably mutual. Through much of the 1920s, different tribal elites competed to define Uyghur identity in terms favorable to their respective communities, and to their own communal authority. These struggles took place against a backdrop of post-revolutionary bureaucratic chaos, as unions and bureaus sprang up like mushrooms and were constantly renamed, reorganized, and shuttered. Although many of the Uyghur idea's most prominent exponents met their end soon thereafter in the Stalinist purges, the ethno-national concept they had developed over the preceding two decades had struck lasting roots in the USSR, and had begun to germinate in Xinjiang as well. The USSR's initial policy toward Xinjiang had been halting and confused. Soviet Uyghur activists in the 1920s, angling for state sponsorship, had presented their transborder community as a potential conduit for Soviet influence in northwest China, 186. Moscow's official policy, however, called for nudging China gradually toward socialism via cooperation with the reigning Chinese Nationalist Party. Until this relationship soured in the late 1920s, the Soviet leadership had little appetite for sponsoring revolution along China's ethnic frontiers. Nonetheless, the Uyghur concept did begin filtering into Xinjiang, transmitted by merchants, students, and others who traversed the Xinjiang-Soviet border. By 1932, the Turpani poet Abdulkalik Uyghur was declaiming Awaken, Poor Uyghur. In his hometown in eastern Xinjiang, and the subsequent year a short-lived Eastern Turkestan Republic established around Kashgar-minted coins reading, Republic of Uyghuristan. Still, in early 1930s Xinjiang the Uyghur idea had limited currency among the populace, and remained anathema to the provincial government. All of this changed following the 1933-34 establishment of a Soviet-aligned regime in the province under Chinese warlord Sheng Shikai. Sheng's administration transformed Xinjiang into something of a Soviet satellite, complete with Soviet-style cultural policies and rhetoric. Soviet nationality categories were implemented in Xinjiang by 1935, though in direct opposition to the prevailing trend in Soviet Central Asia, Tarantais and Uyghurs were designated as separate nationalities. While the concluding sections of Uyghur nation take only limited account of non-elite opinion in Xinjiang, the preceding chapters make sensitive use of intelligence reports and scholarly records to give a sense of public opinion in Soviet Uyghur communities during the 1920s and 30s. Given the available sources, though, it is inevitable that a study of Uyghurist politics in this period will focus substantially on the ideas and maneuverings of intellectual and political elites. Given that this is a story of ideas and their propagators, politics and its practitioners, Uyghur nation could have been enriched by a more textured treatment of its subject's human dimensions, the personal backgrounds, characteristics and relationships that form the undercurrent of intellectual history, and the Central Asian milieu in which these individuals operated. This, however, is a comparatively minor issue considering the remarkable contributions Brophy's study makes to our understanding of modern Uyghur history, and to the growing literature on nation formation in socialist states. Scholars of diaspora communities will have much to learn from Brophy's work, as will anyone seeking to understand the evolution of nationality's policy in modern China. With its impressive scope, unique integration of sources, and theoretical rigor, 
Uyghur nation will long remain a milestone in its field. We have come to the end of our episode. Thank you for joining us today in our review of Uyghur Nations by David Brophy. Remember to subscribe to our podcast and stay tuned for our next episode.